Hey guys, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Robert Polly here. Where else would I be? And today on the show, animals. We kill them, we eat them, we take over their habitats, and we generally have our way with them. And what do they give us in return? I mean, aside from their meat and their hides and their homes. Well, also, some very badass germs. In fact, many, if not most, of the infectious diseases that attack us started out in other species. And there is a word for that. It is zoonosis, the process whereby an infectious agent jumps the gap from animals to humans. And it's not a very big gap in many instances. Zoonosis is the origin of a lot of our classic scourges like bubonic plague and yellow fever, and also of those fearsome new contagions that have been frightening the bejesus out of us in recent decades, like SARS, Ebola, Lyme disease, hantavirus, and HIV. Need I even mention bird flu and mad cow disease? And if it seems to you like there is a lot more of this kind of thing going around lately, well, my guest today says your intuition is indeed correct. David Quammen is a science and nature writer, a very well-known one, and his latest book is all about zoonotic diseases, how they cross over from critters to us, and why our own actions may be making things worse. The book is called Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. Sounds scary, I know, but remember, forewarned is forearmed. So forearm yourself and listen in to this interview with David Quammen. David, before we start, can I just ask you whether your rabies vaccination is up to date? <laughs> it is. It is. And when I was helping one scientist uh, catch bats on a rooftop in Bangladesh, I said, well, my rabies vaccination is up to date. And he said, great, that should protect you against dog rabies in the U.S. But not bat rabies in uh, Bangladesh. Right, yeah. yeah. Or, or Nipah virus, which was what you guys were looking for in these bats, or, right? Or Nipah virus, yeah, Nipah. that we were looking for in these giant fruit bats in Bangladesh. There is no vaccination against Nipah virus. And it has a fatality rate of? 60 or 70 percent. So the logical question is, what are you, batshit crazy? <laughs> I hope not. Uh, people have asked me that. Don't you get scared? When I first read about Ebola years ago, I thought the notion of going into an African forest and studying one of these viruses, Ebola in particular at that time, uh, you, you'd have to be batshit crazy or, or reckless or whatever. But then the more I learned about it, the more I got into the subject, the more my irrational fears were replaced by rational fears or, or concerns. And I realized these things are very dangerous, but they're not preternatural. Ebola, for instance, doesn't fly through the air. Nipah virus probably flies through the air, not just in bats, but on a, on a human sneeze or a cough. Uh, but you can protect yourself against that, too. And these field scientists that I've documented in the book, that I've portrayed in the book, are very rational people who love life, and they protect themselves with masks, gloves, sometimes Tyvek, hazmat suits, and hoods, and positive air pressure filters, and that sort of thing. And I, I use whatever they use, but I stand three feet behind them. Um, that all sounds really good, but your book is full of tales of researchers who died in the line of duty after being scratched or poked or otherwise getting infected from the animals they work with. Well, there are a few of those stories. You're right, Robert. <laughs> um, it's not a, a branch of science without its risks. I talk about um, a fellow named Jeffrey Platt, who was an Ebola researcher in England, who had a needle stick accident and got very, very sick. He survived. I talk about a researcher who was working on um, monkeys for a polio vaccine who got bit and picked up something called uh, macaquine herpes virus B, uh, and he died a gruesome death. And I talk about a few other people who picked up Marburg virus uh, doing adventure tourism in Ugandan caves, and uh, one Dutch woman died, and a woman in Colorado barely survived. So, so yes, it is a tangible danger when you, when you go near these things. Um, you went into some caves yourself, too, yeah? I did. Uh, I went into bat caves in southern China with a researcher named Alexei Chimura, who was looking for the 
reservoir host of the SARS virus. The reservoir host is a creature that it, it lives in discreetly, inconspicuously, without causing symptoms, and therefore it can live there permanently. That's where these viruses are between outbreaks in humans. They're hiding in their reservoir hosts. And uh, he was looking for the reservoir host of SARS, which is, um, uh, which is a bat. He wanted to know if it was in these particular areas. We have been talking a lot about bats, and it uh, turns out that bats are like maybe the number one reservoir for these diseases you're writing about uh, that cross over from animals to humans. Yes. Bats seem to be overly represented as reservoir hosts of these scary new viruses. Marburg has its reservoir in bats, SARS, bats, Nipah virus, bats, Hendra virus in Australia, bats, rabies, bats are one of the primary reservoirs, Ebola, the reservoir host is still undiscovered, but it is suspected to be bats. So the question arises, uh, hey, guys, why bats? And uh, there may be a couple of answers for that, but I want to make clear that we don't want to demonize bats because of this. Bats already have a serious PR problem. <laughs> and uh, bats are not culprits. Bats are merely participants in the ecology of these diseases. They do carry them in many cases, and they shed them. They may shed them in their feces, their urine. Fruit bats may also shed some of these viruses in their saliva. They chew on fruit, but they don't swallow the fruit pulp because they have to fly. They, they suck out the juices and then drop the fruit pulp, and the fruit pulp may contain virus from their saliva. So, yes, bats are an important part of this whole picture. And word to the wise, for those people who want to go out and investigate possibly infected bat populations, keep your mouth closed when you look up at the bats. That's what John Epstein <laughs> told me on that rooftop in Bangladesh as I was gaping up at this big <laughs> flock of beautiful, <laughs> giant fruit bats circling around us uh, as we were setting up the, the nets to catch them. Uh, he said, yeah, you might want to keep your mouth closed when you gaze up at these things straight overhead. <laughs> um, well, one of the reasons, before we move on to other subjects and leave bats behind, one of the reasons you cite that bats may be so great at harboring uh, these diseases or incubating new diseases, something I had no inkling of, which is that uh, bats represent 25%, one quarter, of all mammal species. Yes, they represent a huge proportion of the diversity of mammal species. So when they seem to be disproportionately represented as reservoir hosts, it may simply be that they're disproportionately represented among all kinds of mammals. And then they have the added uh, characteristics of hanging out in large numbers, which is a great way to spread and allow sort of diseases to to evolve, and then uh, flying everywhere, which is a great way to, you know, get it around. Uh, Plus, they live a long time. Bats live an unusually long time for small mammals. Uh, even little bats may live 18 or 20 years, and you'll never find a mouse that lives 18 or 20 years. And so those things cause those populations to be really good, hospitable, incubating environments, habitats for viruses. And then there's also a suspicion among scientists that bats' immune systems may be different and may be less likely to react to viruses, um, try and rid themselves of the viruses. They may tolerate the viruses. Uh, just to take the pressure off bats for the moment, I wanted to also cite some other species uh, that are reservoirs for these uh, diseases. In fact, I'm going to quote you. Hantaviruses jump from rodents. Lassa, that's Lassa fever, too jumps from rodents. Yellow fever virus jumps from monkeys. Monkeypox, despite its name, seems to jump mainly from squirrels. Herpes B, which is a deadly form of herpes, jumps from macaques, that is a type of monkey. Influenzas jump from wild birds into domestic poultry and then into people, sometimes after a transformative stopover in pigs. Measles may have originally jumped from domesticated sheep and goats. HIV-1, that is the major HIV virus uh, behind the AIDS epidemic, jumped our way from chimpanzees. Etc. Etc. So right. what what we're talking about? There's a fancy word for this: uh, diseases that cross over from animals to humans. Uh, zoonosis. When did you first hear that word, and when did you first get fascinated by this topic? 
I got interested in this whole topic about 12 years ago. I was sitting at a campfire in a Central African forest. I was out on assignment for National Geographic, and there were a couple of local guys at that campfire with me, and they started talking about the time when Ebola struck their village. Their village was just east of where we were in that forest, and we knew this forest was habitat for Ebola virus. I knew, because I'd read a bit about it, that Ebola affects gorillas and chimps, kills gorillas and chimps as well as humans. These guys started talking to me about how horrible it was when Ebola struck their village, killing friends and loved ones. One guy lost six family members. He had a niece he was holding in his arms when she died. And uh, and then the other guy said, you know, there was a weird thing, too, when this was happening, when it was killing people in our village. He and I noticed a pile of 13 dead gorillas nearby in the forest. So that phrase, that image, 13 dead gorillas in a pile near the stricken village, stuck in my mind, stuck in my memory, represented the connectedness of humans with other species by way of infectious disease. You're reminding me of a phrase that stuck in my mind from your book. You describe it as our infernal aboriginal connectedness. <laughs> okay. Do you remember that phrase? I don't, no, but I, I don't <laughs> doubt that I said it somewhere. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it's the old Darwinian truth, and I say that I know in the book because I love Darwin, uh, that uh, humans are not separate from the natural world. We're not apart from the world of nature. There is no world of nature. There's just the world, and we are part of it. Uh, animals are part of it. Viruses are part of it. And, uh, and we are just, after all, uh, another form of animal ourselves. Yeah, and uh, the idea that we are living in pristine isolation with our own species is dead wrong. Uh, it's a big genetic swap meet out there with viruses carrying viruses and, and other processes carrying genetic material between us uh, such that a large part of our genome is exogenous. It, it comes from other species carried by viruses. Right, right. And becomes inserted into our genome, right? It's part of the history of infectious disease of the human population. You can see it in the genome. There are also things that they call endogenous retroviruses. You know, HIV is a retrovirus. It's not an endogenous retrovirus. It inserts itself into the, into the uh, cells of people who are infected. But the endogenous retroviruses are the ones whose genomes have been inserted permanently into the shared human genome. They don't cause disease anymore. They just represent the fact that we have been infected by a whole lot of things over our history as a species. Um, in fact, you know, when you consider this definition, zoonotic disease that crosses over from animals to humans, it seems a bit arbitrary. I mean, maybe most of our diseases ultimately came from other species. Um, you that's, know. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Robert. At a certain um, scale, it's an artificial distinction because everything comes from somewhere. We are a relatively young species. We know that 60% of our infectious diseases, the current infectious diseases of humans, are in the strict sense zoonotic. And that includes AIDS, which passed from, as you pointed out, from chimps into humans uh, within relatively recent time. Uh, but the other 40% of our infectious diseases had to come from somewhere, measles, uh, Polio had to come from somewhere, even though they don't infect other animals now. And measles, for instance, is probably evolved from the rinderpest virus that we probably got from hoofed animals in Africa mm, a thousand years ago. So we've been living, you know, cheek by jowl with our animal kin forever, and zoonotic diseases, the spillovers, uh, have been going on forever. Why, though, is there so much recent attention to this process, and, uh -huh. and why the yeah. book? Yes, that's, that gets to the point of why I wrote this book at this time. It is an ancient process. Bubonic plague was a zoonotic disease, for instance. Yellow fever, zoonotic, it's been around for a long, long time. But there seems to be a drumbeat of newly emerging zoonotic diseases within recent decades, beginning in about the late 50s, early 60s, and, and I recite a whole list of them in the, in the book. You know, Ebola, Marburg, um, Lhasa, uh, SARS. SARS, HIV, right, Nipah, Hendra, uh, West Nile, 
There's a whole long list. So it seems to be happening more and more now. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, we now number 7 billion people. Um, we're more abundant on this planet than any single species of large vertebrate ever has been. We're pushing our way into the, the ecosystems with great diversity, the tropical forests, etc. Uh, we're causing disruption there. We're cutting down the forest and building settlements and, and timber camps. We're killing the animals and eating them. We're knocking viruses loose from their accustomed reservoir hosts. In some cases, we're pushing those hosts to the brink of extinction, and we're inheriting those viruses more and more. They get into humans, and then the other thing that's different now is that when they cause an outbreak, a localized outbreak of transmissible disease in humans, that outbreak is more likely to go big. It's more likely to turn into a national epidemic or an international pandemic because we're moving around so quickly and, and so frequently. There's much more connectivity. You know, it's the globalization of disease, among other things, in our globalized world. Well, let's tell one story, one of the many that you relate in your book, about the actual process of you know, a zoonotic spillover of a disease that became huge, AIDS. You have this, to some extent, hypothetical at this point, unbelievably detailed and kind of dramatic story of our current picture of how AIDS arose. You know, for a while, um, when people were still getting their arms around it in the 80s and 90s, you'd hear stories about one patient named, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, you can correct me, but Gaetan Dugas. I would say Gaetan Dugas, but I'm I'm just <laughs> guessing too. A flight attendant who was dubbed Patient Zero, who they said had spread AIDS basically from Africa to the Americas and elsewhere. And uh, it turns out, though, that he was by no means Patient Zero. In fact, they, they've now managed to trace AIDS back to samples that they found in the Congo dating back to 1959, right? Samples of that's, blood from people? That's correct. 1959, 1960, tissue samples, archived tissue samples, retrospectively screened, turning up HIV positive from 1959 and from 1960. And they've done something even more remarkable. They have now sort of put together a scenario by which HIV may have entered the human population, at least the strain of HIV that has now become the epidemic one, HIV-1 uh, group N, Group M, actually. Group M, sorry. <laughs> I love it when people correct me. Thank you for doing that. Um, they, they now say that it may have arisen back in around 1908. Uh, and this is, again, all hypothetical. Tell that story. Yes, and it's really a little bit more than hypothetical. It's supported uh, very persuasively with, with molecular phylogenetic data. Work done by Beatrice Hahn, who was at Alabama at the time, Michael Warby in Tucson, and their colleagues. Uh, Beatrice Hahn has pinpointed very persuasively the origin in space, the place where the crucial spillover of the pandemic strain of HIV occurred, and that is in southeastern Cameroon, the southeastern corner of Cameroon in Central Africa. And Michael Warby, based on those tissue samples archived in Kinshasa, has, has, has located it in time at, as you say, 1908 or earlier, give or take a margin of error. And that's much different from what we have thought we know about the origins of HIV. The fellow that you mentioned, the, the airline steward, Gaetan Dugas, called patient zero, was actually, who knows, patient 467,241. Uh -huh. Patient zero was presumably, and this part is hypothetical, was presumably a man in southeastern Cameroon in about 1908, give or take, who probably killed and butchered a chimpanzee, and in the course of that, got blood-to-blood -blood contact between the chimp and himself. Maybe he had a cut on his hand, or maybe he cut himself while he was doing this. And he became the first HIV-positive human, or the, at least the first person to carry that strain, HIV-1 group M, the pandemic strain. He was patient zero. And then the infection simmered, barely being transmitted from one person to another, in, presumably in the villages of Cameroon, southeastern Cameroon, slowly making its way down the river system, out of that part of Central Africa, down finally to the main stem Congo River, and then into the big cities of colonial Congo. Brazzaville, the capital of French Congo. Leopoldville, the capital of Belgian Congo. Leopoldville, 
eventually became Kinshasa after independence. And from Kinshasa, this virus having become more prevalent in the population because sexual mores were different and some other factors. From Kinshasa, it seems to have made its way to Haiti with returning professional workers, Haitians, who had come to the Congo and, and then went home to Haiti. They carried it to Haiti, and from Haiti then it got to the U.S. and, and to the world. Um, you know, it's truly astounding that scientists have been able to piece this picture together and uh, again, David, I encourage you to correct me if I say it wrong, but I just want to say very quickly that one of the techniques is by identifying these strains both in human samples and in uh, in chimpanzee samples and then looking at their genetic variation uh, and knowing something about the rate of change and mutation, uh, you can actually reconstruct a kind of family tree and also assign a chronology to it. And that's how you get to this idea that one guy and one chimp met up in the forest in Cameroon that's exactly right. That's what they do. Molecular phylogenetics is the fancy label for it, um, and they do it using um, molecular clock assumptions. They look at different uh, the genomes of different strains of virus from humans and from chimpanzees, and they can see that there is a close, close, close match between all of the a pandemic strain of HIV in humans around the world, and the chimpanzee precursor virus just from that southeastern corner of Cameroon. That's the match. And then they use the molecular clock thing to determine that, well, the samples that were archived in 1959 and 1960 seem to have diverged from each other, just those two, mm -hmm. by about 50 years' worth of change since they had become a human virus, and that's what pushes it back to around 1908. Yeah, it, it's it's really amazing. Um, when you tackled this, and, and by the way, I want to say that this is a big book. Uh, this is not a book that's sort of a lightweight thriller. This has the feel of an attempt to be definitive in a way. Uh, well, thank you, Robert, but let me say also that it, it's meant to read like a thriller. I really want this to be an important book, uh, a, a serious book, but also a page-turner. I hope there's a lot of guilty pleasures, a lot of suspense, <laughs> a lot of adventure in this book for the reader. Well, there is, and that's, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. You know, this is a, a time-honored uh, genre, the, the medical you know, thriller or medical detective story. And I think it goes all the way back to Microbe Hunters, which was written in 1926. Paul DeQueef. Exactly, yeah. I mean, wasn't that the original one? Well, it certainly was one of them. Um, that, the Microbe Hunters, an old hardback copy of it, has been sitting on my uh, office shelf over my desk for much of the last six years, along with all the books on the, you know, the phylogenetics of HIV and current research in Ebola and all that. That book has been sitting there. But... You being a, I, I know, a very serious writer, were you wary, though, of jumping into such a well-worn, you know, sort of genre full of its own cliches? Well, not so much wary, but I didn't want to write sensationalized nonfiction on this because it doesn't need to be sensationalized. So I maintain a very strict adherence to what is fact. For instance, when I describe Ebola, and I try and set the record straight on certain things, Ebola is a horrible disease, but it's not really quite so bloody and preternatural as people have been led to believe. Yeah, and I want to say I appreciated the fact that you did not um, play up the gruesome aspects of diseases like Ebola. I think a lot of us got our impressions of Ebola from Richard Preston's book, uh, The Hot Zone, and uh, I came away with visions of people, you know, gushing blood from every orifice of their organs, liquefying, and all these almost, uh, you know, horror movie images. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, that's not really true. It doesn't really work that way. Uh, it's bad enough that it kills you, and it can't be a pleasant death, but it is not visually this, this sort of, you know, splatter fest that... Uh, would work in a David Cronenberg movie, you know? That, that is correct. <laughs> That's what the Ebola experts have told me. Uh, I don't want to be in an argument with Richard Preston. Uh, that was a very, very fascinating book to me, and, and it, it brought people to this field. I know some Ebola researchers who started doing this because they read The Hot Zone. But as, as Richard has admitted, um, there are points that need correcting. The record needs to be set straight. Um, Ebola does not cause people to melt down. It causes them to die, and that's bad enough. I imagine you thought a lot about this, the psychology of, of fear, uh, fear of contagion, fear of diseases. In the popular press, 
a lot revolves around just the kinds of graphic visual images that we were talking about that makes a, a disease particularly fearsome. In other words, does it mutilate your body? The real horrors of disease are usually uh, ignored for um, a lurid fascination with the symptoms. That's right, yeah. And uh, people tend not to remember that influenza, which we think of as a garden variety annoyance, influenza kills tens of thousands of people around the world in an average year, but it doesn't kill them as dramatically as as Ebola or uh, Nipah or Hendra virus kill people. Oh, yeah, and it doesn't have that uh, exotic-sounding name, so Ebola sounds even scarier because it conjures up images of the, I don't know, darkest Africa, maybe? Right. You know? Well, yeah, I think of Ebola as the charismatic microfauna, <laughs> in the same sense that lions, tigers, and bears are the charismatic megafauna. <laughs> Nonetheless, though, uh, you know, speaking of fear, um, did this research make you more afraid or less afraid of our Weirdly, future? it made me less afraid. It uh, caused my irrational fears to turn into rational fears or rational concerns. Well, when you're on an international flight, let's say, and the person uh, seated next to you starts sneezing or coughing, do you move away? Do you do anything? <laughs> yes, that would be a good good practice. And we may come to a point where people who are infected with something are finding it difficult to get on a plane. I mean, think about the fact that 12 years ago, you could get on a plane carrying a pocket knife. And now, you, uh, of course, you can't get on a plane carrying a pocket knife, but you can still get on a plane carrying a virus. It may be that part of security screening in the future, and this is already true in some cases in, in Asia, may be that we pass through an infrared sensor and they detect whether our temperature is 98.6 or 102 or 103. And if you're running a, f a fever, you may not be allowed to board a plane. That obviously is a public health measure that also raises civil liberties questions. I think it's probably a conversation that we're going to be having in the future. Boy, are we looking at some long security lines in that case. Yeah. Stick yeah, out your right. tongue, say, ah... Uh... <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you can walk through it, I, and I've done this, getting off a plane in Hong Kong and in Australia and places during um, during flu epidemics. Uh, you can walk through an infrared scanner pretty quickly, and um, I suppose the people who are healthy go through showing green, and then suddenly a, a guy comes along who's pink or orange, and they, they stick out a finger and say, excuse me, sir, step over here. Really? I didn't know that. Yes, yes. Wow. That, that, has, that happens. Those that usually have been coming off a plane, though, not as I'm getting on a plane. And I don't know what happens to those people if they are running a fever. Uh, but I think we're going to find out. I think we're going to discover the complications of that particular thing. Well, there, there are huge uh, civil liberties issues involved here, but I'm just going to join you in wild speculation about our future. You know, in addition to, you know, maybe screening people and telling a few to step aside, um, I can imagine if there were a way to get cultures from everybody who boarded planes or disembarked from a plane, you would at least have a record of what went where uh, in terms of pathogens, you know, in terms of infectious agents, um, which could be incredibly useful. You're reminding me, though, of um, another zoonosis story that you tell in the book, and this is the SARS virus, uh, mm. severe acute respiratory syndrome. You write, um, in late February 2003, SARS got on a plane in Hong Kong and went to Toronto. And it seems like a long time ago, um, but a lot of people shouldn't have any trouble remembering how big SARS was for a very brief time, traveling around the world, killing almost a tenth of those people infected, and then sort of disappearing all of a sudden. That's right. And the experts that I've talked to, some of them have said, okay, Ebola is fine, Marburg is fine, Nipah is fine, but if you want a really scary virus, look at the SARS virus. That was the one, they say, where we really dodged a bullet that could have been much, much worse. It infected about 8,000 people in cities around the world and killed about 10%, give or take. Um, but it could have been much, much bigger. You hear people say, well, and SARS burned out. SARS did not burn out. We stopped SARS, or the, the professionals stopped SARS. They stopped it with very, very good, very fast diagnostics so that in a very short time they figured out what it was and how it worked, and with very firm public health measures. They got around it. They isolated cases. They protected the health care workers with personal protective equipment. And if 
circumstances had been a little bit different, they might not have stopped it. It was a very contagious and very virulent virus, and it hasn't recurred since. We haven't seen anything of it since 2003, barely into 2004. It could return. It probably will return. We need to be ready for it. It could return because its reservoir, like so many of the other diseases we've talked about, uh, bats. is alive and well. Yes, bats. Um, well, SARS, uh, I said it disappeared. Obviously, I wasn't giving enough credit to the to the health organizations who you say nipped it in the bud. But it must have set almost a record for the quickness of response, the quickness with which they discovered the disease agent, a type of virus known as a coronavirus, the quickness with which they were able to control it, and the quickness with which they were able to trace it first to a carrier called the civet cat and then to its ultimate reservoir, the bat? Yeah, they thought at first that people were getting this because people in southern China eat wildlife, including an animal uh, related to mongooses called the civet cat. They traced it to a civet cat, one of the earliest cases, and they thought, oh, we, we better kill all the civet cats. So they, they, they culled, they killed a lot of civet cats. And then they discovered that, well, its reservoir was not the civet cat. The civet cat had merely picked it up probably in a big market situation where animals were piled one on top of each other in cages, different species of animals. The civet cat seemed to have picked it up from a bat, and the ultimate uh, reservoir host of SARS is one or more species of bat. But as long as people are catching bats for food, catching civets for food, putting them together in these live markets in southern China, there is a chance that it can spill over again and get into the human food chain. You describe uh, the wild game markets. You know, it's mind-boggling how many species the Chinese capture and sell and ultimately eat. You mentioned, for instance, uh, one researcher who had seen at a market in Guangzhou Storks, seagulls, herons, cranes, deers, alligators, crocodiles, wild pigs, raccoon dogs. What's a raccoon dog? Uh, it's kind of a mammal, and I should be able to tell you off the top of my head which family it belongs to, but I can't. It might be part of the raccoon family, but I can't remember. And then the list continues. Flying squirrels, many snakes and turtles, many frogs, as well as domestic dogs and cats, all on sale as food. And that's only a partial list. Um the Chinese are the, the most amazing omnivores. Are they still doing this despite the outbreaks of not only um, you know, SARS, as we talked about, but also various avian flus and other zoonotic you know, animal-borne diseases? Yeah, well, they probably are to some degree, but the big live markets, the wet markets that I mentioned, have been outlawed by the provincial government and to some extent by the central government. Uh, and so the trade in wild animals has been driven underground. When I was there... Uh, all of those wild animals weren't in the markets anymore, but my informants told me that, be assured, those things are still being being traded and e- eaten through the through the black market. If you were a pathogen, what would you be? If I were a pathogen and I wanted to uh, make a really wise career move by <laughs> leaping from an animal into these human things that are so abundant, so widespread... I would be a single-stranded RNA virus of the sort that SARS is, of the sort that Nipah and Hendra and Marburg and a number of these on the rogues list. HIV. Uh, HIV, right. Single-stranded RNA virus. And the reason I would do that is because RNA viruses have higher mutation rates than DNA viruses. DNA viruses maintain their genomes on the trusty old double helix, and that that has a repair system when they replicate. RNA viruses, single-stranded, do not have repair systems, so they mutate more quickly, and therefore they evolve more quickly. And when they pass into a new kind of host, they are more likely to be able to adapt, um, evolve, and flourish in that new host, which is part of what's been going on. Yeah, uh, RNA being the single-stranded ribonucleic acid uh, genetic material, it's a lot less stable, so it changes a lot faster, which makes some of these viruses devilishly resourceful. You know, That's in- right. It takes us right back to Darwin. They replicate and they mutate as they replicate, which means introducing mistakes into their genome, and usually those mistakes are damaging, but 
sometimes they turn out to be advantageous. There's a lot of genetic variation, and we know that Darwinian selection uses genetic variation as the raw material for creating adaptation. And yet, as we talk, we we sound like we're implying intentionality in these little organisms or sub-organisms like viruses, when in fact there isn't any. And you have a nice quote here um, I wanted to read. Among the most important things to remember about evolution and about its primary mechanism, natural selection, as limbed by Darwin and his successors, is that it doesn't have purposes. It only has results. Yes, thank you for getting that in. Viruses don't have purposes. Viruses don't make choices. Viruses don't really make career moves. But our contact with the animals that carry them represents opportunities for them to spill, um, not to not to leap, that's a little bit too personalized, but to spill into another sort of host. And um, many are called, but few are chosen. Um, the fittest survive. There's an accidental element to it. There is the Darwinian selection. Uh, and the viruses don't know what they're doing, but the ones who have done certain things manage to survive and thrive in the new host. Getting back to my personification of you as an infectious agent, Mm-hmm. Would you, in addition to being an RNA virus that mutates rapidly and therefore can outwit uh, the immune defenses of various hosts and so on, um, would you kill your host? There is a belief that it's a bad move to kill your host. There's an old saying, uh, the first rule of a successful parasite, don't kill your host. These things are all parasitical in, in the broader sense. Uh, but... Uh, I explain in the book that that is not necessarily true. The real first rule of a successful parasite is don't kill your host until you've had a chance to spread to another host. So that uh, it's entirely possible that these viruses can remain very, very virulent, very lethal, killing their hosts as long as they're being transmitted in the meantime, as long as as, uh, victim A passes the virus to victim B, before victim A dies. Once the virus has been passed, there's no disadvantage to the virus in Darwinian terms if patient A dies. And uh, HIV is a good example of, and again, I'm going to use a word that sounds intentional, it's not meant to, uh, example of of a good strategy, which is live a long time, let your host live a long time, and spread you around. That's right. The, uh, the AIDS virus, HIV, one is a very, very patient virus. Again, this is personification. This is only a metaphor, folks. Um, but um, it, it replicates relatively slowly. It destroys the immune system relatively slowly, and that allows a lot of time for it to be transmitted onward. So you talk about, as epidemiologists talk about, the next big one, HIV being the, the most recent big one, uh, other big ones including... Um, the Spanish flu of 1918 through 1919, which may have killed as many as 50 million people and originated from birds, right, we think? Yes, we now know that all the human influences have their reservoir host, their origination in wild aquatic birds. So if you really wanted to scare us, uh, it would still be probably avian flu that we should be losing sleep over. Or some kind of influenza or some other RNA virus. I was on a panel last night with a, uh, one of the experts in this at the New York Academy of Sciences, uh, and Ian Lipkin, who runs a laboratory at Columbia. He's a wonderful expert on this stuff. And he was saying that we all hear a lot about avian flu. What if avian flu became transmissible from human to human? Uh, he made the point just passingly that there are other flus out there that he thinks are even scarier that with a little bit of mutation could become both very transmissible and very lethal. The general point is that the influenzas uh, are extremely protean. They're extremely changeable because of, because of the way their, their genetic material is arranged and replicated. So that the influenzas are constantly changing, constantly mutating, and also constantly swapping genes with other strains of influenza. That's why you hear about the pig as a mixing bowl for influenza. That's one of the things that happens in pigs. So we never know what's going to happen with influenza. The influenza experts in fact, say, you know, we don't have a chance in hell of predicting the character of the next influenza. And it could be something very, very bad if it is both highly transmissible and 
um, highly virulent. Um, H5N1, that well-known variety of bird flu that has been, you know, on the radar for some years now, crosses over from fowl, from poultry to human beings, and often kills people, but it does not spread from humans to humans yet, right? That's right. That's the crucial thing about that so-called bird flu, H5N1. Yes, it's quite lethal in humans, but it passes into humans from birds, and it doesn't seem to pass from human to human. Whenever there's a new case of H5N1, I belong to a a listserv called ProMed, and and all of us on ProMed, we get an an email alert about there was a a five-year-old boy in Cairo who died of H5N1, and then you immediately scan that to see whether it says he is known to have had contact with poultry that was ill. And if you see that, then everybody around the world breathes a sigh of relief. If you don't see that sentence and you see a sentence that says uh, he is not known to have had contact with poultry, but his sister died of a mysterious fever two weeks ago, then alarm bells ring very loudly. People focus much more closely on that poor five-year-old boy in Cairo. That hasn't happened yet. There have been a few alarm bells where they thought that it might have been human-to-human transmission, but uh, I don't think there are any verified cases, or there certainly are very, very few. It does not seem well-equipped to pass from one human to another. So it's not good at surviving, let's say, in airborne form. Yeah, that seems to be the case. It doesn't seem to replicate and disperse from, from the human respiratory system. So it could be a few mutations away from that? It could be a few mutations away. I think I've heard that they think it's five or six mutations away. But there was some controversial research done in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, um, early this year on using laboratory animals, ferrets, which are stand-ins for humans, to see if they could create a form of H5N1 that would pass from ferret to ferret by the respiratory route. And they succeeded in doing that. And then there was a big outcry as to whether this had been reckless, foolhardy research or really very useful research. And my expert friend last night, Ian Lipkin, was saying that he thought that, that in fact, it was foolhardy research. Wow. I just hope they're doing it under the right conditions. Um, uh, Now, we're talking about crossing over from birds, which are pretty evolutionarily distant from us humans. Um, Other diseases we've talked about come from closer kin, like chimpanzees and monkeys. What, to your knowledge, is the most phylogenetically uh, remote animal that has given rise to a zoonotic disease that, you know, passed into humans? Well, uh, I suppose it would be reptiles. Uh, Reptiles are birds. I don't think we can choose which of them is uh, more distant from us phylogenetically. But as you said, there are quite a few diseases that leap from birds into humans, and there are at least some that leap from reptiles into humans. For instance, forms of salmonella um, you can acquire from from reptiles. People with uh, reptiles as pets sometimes pick up salmonella from from the reptiles. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, So would that be called zoonotic? Yeah. Uh, just to clarify the, the meaning of zoonotic, um, there are diseases we know that are sort of carried by uh, other species and, and transmitted to us by these vectors, they, you know, mosquitoes infecting That's us right. with yep. malaria. That's a different thing, and we should clarify that. You're right. There are um, diseases that are vectored into humans by, by arthropods, by insects, by ticks. Um, Lyme disease is carried by ticks from small rodents into humans, and in that kind of a situation, you would say that the small rodent is the reservoir host in which the pathogen is reproducing in more or less the same way it reproduces within humans, and the mosquito or the tick is the vector in which the pathogen is likely to have a different stage of its life history if it goes through any life history changes at all. Um, You know, the circumstances in which these spillover events happen, I mean, some of them are, are quite well known. There are the cases where you have, you know, large populations of animals being, you know, factory farmed, which becomes a great breeding ground for disease, and people are handling those animals in slaughterhouses, and they're eating them, and so on and so forth. There's also the case of the, you know, wild game markets in China, where, again, people are handling and eating the animals, and the cases of, say, hunters in the jungles of Africa and elsewhere, where, again, people are coming into contact with animals that are reservoirs for these diseases. Um, Here in urbanized America, a lot of us have no contact with uh, farm animals, and we don't hunt. 
Our biggest contact is with our household pets, and yet they don't seem to be giving rise to a lot of zoonotic disease. I mean, I, I can't even think of a good example of uh, a disease crossing over from dogs, except for rabies, which is a rare, very rare event, uh, or cats into humans, or vice versa. Well, there aren't many, but there are some. I think toxoplasmosis can be uh, passed from cats into humans, although you might want to check me on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I describe a case in the book of uh, parrot fever, a number of cases of parrot fever getting into humans from parrots and other pet birds. Parrot fever is not a virus. It's a bacterial disease, and it's generally not fatal. But um, there was a flurry in the 1920s and 30s. So there are some... But if you have your household pets immunized with the usual things that your veterinarian would recommend, certainly first of all against rabies, then uh, don't worry too much about your your dogs and your cats. They're not your enemy. (laughs) They have been close to humans for a long time, and what's causing most of these spillovers is our contact with species of animals that we haven't had intimate relationships with for a long time. Uh Uh-huh. Or the other case where they may be domesticated animals, but we have created an amazing breeding ground for disease, our overuse of antibiotics, the huge populations that are concentrated in these small spaces, things like that, right? That's, that's right. That's right. And that would take us to, for instance, an outbreak like the outbreak of something called Q fever in the Netherlands that, that has been going on for the last few years. Again, it's a really sneaky, robust kind of bacterium. Uh, and it passes from dairy goats through the air into humans and makes humans quite sick. Um, you know, we've been very selfishly focusing on zoonosis, that is, diseases that jump from animals to people, and not paying any attention to, you know, the sort of complementary process, anthroponosis, where diseases might jump from us to them. Um, that must happen, though, huh? It certainly happens. We don't tend to hear about it because we're concerned with human health. Veterinarians, I'm sure, are aware of it. And there are some cases that have been not closely documented but suspected. For instance, in the late 60s, uh, Jane Goodall saw a die-off of some of the chimps in her population, her study population of chimpanzees at Gombe. And it was suspected at the time, never confirmed as far as I know, that those chimps had probably died of polio. Some died, and and some merely got sick, and I think one was crippled. Um, Polio is thought of as a non-zoonotic disease, as a humans-only virus, but it's perfectly possible that close contact between humans and chimpanzees could transfer polio to the chimps. There was a polio outbreak in one of the villages nearby Gombe at the time, which is why they suspected polio. And likewise, the mountain gorillas of Uganda and Rwanda Uh, are a small population, uh, an endangered subspecies of gorilla. When people are allowed to visit those mountain gorillas, the habituated groups that you can approach fairly closely, uh, the human visitors are not allowed to approach uh, closer than about 15 feet. Why is that? Are people afraid that that the gorillas will, will bite the tourists? No, they're afraid that the tourists will cough or sneeze on the gorillas and pass uh, some sort of a disease to them, pass a cold or um, an influenza or uh, even something like measles to the gorillas, which could be devastating in a small population like the mountain gorillas. You know, you're making me think of um, a part of your book where you discuss human beings as ourselves a kind of outbreak. We usually use this word outbreak to describe other species <laughs> multiplying in a way that, right. that hurts yeah. us. But, uh, you know, from the distance uh, of, say, someone who doesn't live on Earth and has no favoritism toward human beings, you could actually look down on this planet and say, whoa, look at that outbreak, meaning uh, the explosion of human populations. That's right. Ecologists, particularly ecologists who study insects, talk about outbreak populations. An outbreak population is something that occurs in, in a species that's capable of extremely fast but cyclic reproduction and gains in population. So it's a, it's a species that might increase by factors of a 100 or a 1,000 in the course of a couple of years, a couple of seasons, uh, and go up to a, to a very high peak and then crash. So essentially it's a boom and bust population. Uh-huh. But we're an outbreak population in the sense that there has never been a species of large-bodied vertebrate animal on this planet anything like as abundant as Homo sapiens is. 
Now we're at 7 billion. We're probably headed toward 9 billion. So we're an outbreak population in that sense. And as I say in the book, the thing about outbreak populations is that they crash. Uh, So we should perhaps consider that analogy as we uh, as we address the problem both of of human population and of infectious diseases well maybe we'll crash on the other hand we are a very special disease organism ourselves uh, in that we control our own environment and to some extent our destiny and we may be able to um you know keep this plague going forever it's possible <laughs> and one of the one of the experts i talked to at the I'll let, I'll let that judgmental word just fly by. Uh, but one of the experts I talked to at the end of the book, uh, an entomologist named Greg Dwyer, tells me that, well, when it comes to insect population outbreaks, for instance, in gypsy moths, the caterpillars multiply hugely, and then they get infected with a virus, and the population crashes. That's the in- interesting thing about these, these insect population crashes. It's usually a virus that takes them down. Uh, but I asked Greg, well, is the analogy... I called it the V analogy between the human outbreak population and these insect outbreaks. Is that analogy valid? Is it inevitable or likely that we're going to suffer that kind of a crash? And he thought about it very carefully for a while, and then he said, well, the most important thing that uh, determines whether um, an outbreak population is going to crash and how it crashes is heterogeneity of behavior, kind of a fancy ecologist term. What he meant by that essentially is the the ability to do different things, and that includes being intelligent enough to modify your behavior. Uh, Gypsy moth caterpillars don't have much heterogeneity of behavior. They're not smart. They can't modify their behavior. They chew their way across the leaves, and they pick up this virus. But humans are intelligent, and the fact that we are and we can modify our behavior, we can adjust, we can change, we can take public health precautions, uh, we can avoid some of these dangers, meant to Greg Dwyer, my my expert on this question, that maybe it's not inevitable. Mm -hmm. He said, and as as the book ends, he said, uh, essentially it all depends. It all depends on how smart we can be. But as populations in general get bigger and more dense, the possibility of epidemics and pandemics does increase. And so, as you say, in the non-human world, that's why you see busts after booms. Uh, It's often pathogens, disease organisms, parasites, right? That's right. That's Um, right. Absolutely. This actually um, transitions into another point I wanted to talk about just briefly, and that is why epidemics sometimes run their course without any medical intervention, in fact, you know, until the 20th century, we had no way of intervening typically, and, and things still peaked and then sort of died out. I mean, everything from bubonic plague to the Spanish flu. I was looking at some old newspaper records uh, from San Jose, near here, near where I'm broadcasting from, um, during the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. And there were um, reports daily of, you know, rising incidents and uh, rising death tolls. And then they peaked and they just started declining. And nobody knew why, because, of course, they couldn't do anything about the flu in terms of prevention. They had no uh, vaccines Mm -hmm. and all of that. Why is it that diseases run their course that way? Yeah, well, this is something that the, the disease scientists have been asking themselves for a 100 years, and I trace a bit of the development of their ideas in the book. Essentially, it revolves around the fact that when a new pathogen gets into a susceptible population, it infects the people that it can get to. It either kills them or makes them stronger. Once the, the pathogen has, has had contact with virtually everybody, then either those victims are dead or they're recovered from the disease, or they were resistant to the disease to begin with. And if they're recovered, in a lot of these cases, they're recovered permanently, and they're permanently resistant to that disease. So essentially, um, the disease is like a fire that runs out of fuel, and then it burns itself out. And then it might disappear for a number of years until the human population builds back up with a lot of newborns who haven't experienced the disease, and then the disease... A pathogen might arrive again on a boat or an airplane or in one infected person, and an epidemic will will start again because there is a new group. There are additional young people added to the supply of susceptibles. So that's why why it goes in these seemingly mysterious cycles. Um, 
And in the case of zoonotic diseases, they may run their course in the human population, but then they're still there simmering away in what we call the reservoir species, right? Um, That's right. Be it bats or chimpanzees or monkeys or squirrels or whatever. That's right. Yeah, these diseases are very different. The ones that are unique to humans have a certain pattern. The ones that are zoonotic and spill over from animals have a different sort of pattern. For instance, measles. If there are a thousand people living on an island and measles arrives, then it's going to probably get to everybody and either they'll get very sick, some will die, some will be resistant, and then measles will die out because a thousand people isn't enough to sustain that infection. Uh, It'll come back when there are a lot of newborns. But if your disease is carried by a uh, rat that's running around on that island, then um, the disease may disappear from the human population, but the reservoir host, the rat, will still be carrying that, and it can spill over quite frequently and, and keep coming into the human population. It won't die out entirely from that island. So SARS, for instance, is still out there? SARS is still out there, presumably, living in a bat a reservoir host that's probably a bat. Well, we know it's a, at, at least certain bats are reservoir host somewhere probably in southern China. There hasn't been uh, a spillover since 2003, early 2004, but it could occur again any time. There's a, there's a kind of moral to all of this, as I read through your book, when we look at the conditions that make these diseases possible, that you know jump from animals to humans, you say it is forces like disruption of habitats, and I would imagine that includes climate change, which has changed the natural range of a lot of species and uh, you know, caused things to enter uh, ecosystems where they weren't there before. Yes. And then other things, uh, other practices where we concentrate large numbers of animals in small spaces like factory farms or wildlife you know, meat markets in China. Um, or, or, or cases where we enter habitats and mess around with the animal population, you know, like hunters in uh, the rainforests and things like that. So I know you're an environmentalist, but a lot of the advice, I guess, uh, that you would give to avoid spillovers would be very much in line with your environmental sentiments. Or my conservation sentiments, yeah, as I yeah. would put it. Yes. What are the lessons Well, the lessons are that uh, we need to create the minimum amount of disruption in the ecosystems where diversity is the highest, because in those places, the tropical forest, equatorial forest, and other really diverse ecosystems around the planet, as well as in in forests in the temperate zone, in forests in North America and elsewhere, um, the more we disrupt those diverse ecosystems, uh, the more we shake things loose. I say in the book, you, you shake a tree and things fall out. Well, that's a metaphor, but it's also sort of literally true. We're going into the wild ecosystems around the world. We're cutting our way through the Congo, cutting our way through the Amazon, cutting our way through the forests of Southeast Asia. We're killing animals and eating them. We're capturing animals and moving them around for medical research. We're building timber camps and uh, villages and mines in those places, and we're exposing ourselves to all of the viruses that are carried by all the diverse animals in those places. So, um, So the lesson is that we need to remember that we're part of nature, we're not separate from nature, we're not above nature, and that we share diseases with nature. We can never get rid of all those diseases. We can never eradicate zoonotic diseases, finally, unless we eradicate the reservoir hosts that they live in. And we don't want to do that. That would be a bad idea. So the alternative is that we just have to tread a little bit more lightly on the planet, and we need to... We need to cope with these things as part of, the, part of the cost of doing business as one species on a planet that contains many species. I imagine you're opposed to bestiality also? <laughs> uh, yes, I don't want to be preachy, but I, I would not recommend that. David, thanks so much. A real pleasure to talk with you, Robert. David Quammen's most recent book is Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. And uh, by the way, uh, someone asked me when they heard this show why I say bestiality and not bestiality. I mean, it is all about the beasts, right? Well, in these matters, I defer to the good folks at Merriam-Webster's online who have this to say. Bestiality. So that's how they like it. Who am I to argue? 
Anyway, I will return next week doing my bestest to inform and hopefully entertain. And in the meantime, you can always find us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com where you can learn more and listen to past shows. You can also find us at iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store and search for 7th Avenue Project. Cidade suja, cinzenta, lotada de ambição